Baroness Amos, always a pleasure to see you and thank you very much for agreeing to participate of conversations with the thought and action leaders in the social sector uh, that I'm hosting on behalf of the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at the University of Cambridge's Judge Business School. I'm both honored and uh, grateful that you've agreed to share your time and insights with us today. Uh, I know that you bring a unique perspective to some of the issues that uh, we'll be discussing, uh, informed by your time in government uh, with the United Nations uh, and more recently in the uh, academic sector. And I'm looking forward to hearing how this uh, rich combination of experiences influences your thinking uh, on the risk and opportunities ahead within the uh, social sector. For those who may be uh, unaware, uh, Baroness Amos has had a very diverse and distinguished career, which uh, keeps growing from strength to strength. Uh, she has served in uh, multiple high-level positions uh, in the UK public sector and in government, including as Chief Executive of the uh, UK Equal Opportunities Commission, Secretary of State for International Development, uh, Leader of the House of Lords, uh, and as UK High Commissioner to uh, Australia. From 2010 to 2015, uh, Baroness Amos served as the United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, which is a hugely demanding uh, position. Uh, and today, Baroness Amos is the master of the University College of the University of Oxford, uh, which uh, having been founded in uh, 1249, I believe has a claim to being the oldest college uh, of the university. Uh, and before that, uh, she spent five years as the director of the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS. Uh, and uh, this is where I'd like to uh, begin. Uh, Baroness Amos, the top 30 fastest growing economies in the world last year were all in the so-called emerging markets, including a disproportionate number of countries in Africa, the Middle East, uh, and parts of Asia. With trillions of dollars in assets in these regions of the world expected to be passed on from one generation uh, to the next uh, within uh, the, the next decade or so. What impact do you think that these geographic and generational shifts will have on the global economy and society uh, in the coming decades? Well, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you and to uh, renew our conversations around uh, some of these uh, issues and also to congratulate you on uh, the creation of this centre, which I think is coming at absolutely the right moment. And one of the things that has struck me uh, in the last few months as we've been in the midst of this global pandemic is some of the reporting which is coming out uh, that actually uh, philanthropy has increased rather than decreased, even at a time where we have seen such a major uh, economic uh, impact on various countries and certainly uh, on individuals and their communities. I think that this is a huge uh, opportunity in a number of different ways. Uh, when I think back, uh, particularly my work around the African uh, continent and what was happening in those countries, you very often saw uh, capital flight. Uh, in terms of philanthropic efforts, what you saw were uh, investments uh, in uh, as it were, family uh, interests, there wasn't necessarily a, st a strategic approach to philanthropy. And I think over time, uh, this has changed and changed significantly. 
with more of a targeted and, uh, dare I say it, business kind of focused uh, approach on thinking through exactly what the philanthropist would like to achieve with the investment that they're making in whatever uh, issue. And uh, as we've seen, uh, 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 wealth consolidate uh, in these emerging markets. Obviously, there is the potential to make a significant difference on a number of social issues in those countries. Now, there is an ongoing debate, um, and there has been uh, for some time, about the way that philanthropy could distort what is happening in a national economy or uh, more generally in a, a global economy. It tends to be a debate that is around uh, the Gates Foundation in particular, and I think that there is some, some history there, uh, which uh, has precipitated that discussion. But certainly if you're talking about emerging economies, uh, where even with rapid growth, the kind of investment that you need to see in various, uh, particularly social sectors, you know, like uh, education, uh, is not necessarily going to happen at the scale or the scope that's needed uh, to make a difference uh, in those countries. I think philanthropic uh, investments can make a huge difference, but how you marry that up uh, with the priorities of the country itself and the needs of that country's citizens, I think is going to be a major question going forward. Absolutely. This year's headlines have, have obviously been dominated by the immediate uh, human and economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. Looking into the distance, however, what do you think the lasting impacts of this pandemic will be on the social sector uh, in particular? And for young women and, and men who are considering careers in the sector or aspiring philanthropists who are starting out on their philanthropic journeys, what should they be uh, aware of in terms of risks and opportunities for engagement? So this is a moment which could be hugely transformational uh, in both a positive and a negative way. Uh, sitting in Oxford, sitting in the United Kingdom, I see, of course, the uh, potential transformational impact that you know, having a vaccine, improved testing uh, could have on our world. But I also see the negative impact in terms of the UK's uh, economy, uh, the number of people who are uh, going to end up uh, without uh, employment, uh, the impact it's having on people uh, socially, their ability to look after their families. And of course, the huge injection uh, that the government has had to make in supporting uh, individuals uh, and communities and the longer term economic uh, impact of that for future generations. So there's both a potential innovative impact in terms of, you know, how we do education, how we train, uh, uh, the health uh, uh, impact of this, uh, what happens in terms of technology, uh, you know, that debate that was going on in the last uh, few years with respect to, to AI, can we come back to this and look at uh, what that will mean? My concern, however, is really in the area of innovation, technology, and the social sectors, if you like, and how we can perhaps link those uh, issues 
uh, and really use uh, philanthropy to not really just kickstart, but transform some of the debate and the discussion. I mean, what we've seen in the last few months are significant changes that would have taken years uh, to make without this pandemic. But what the pandemic has done is accelerated those changes uh, in, some er uh, in some areas in a very, very positive uh, way. So what I would say to anyone who is looking at how to really grasp the positive opportunities around this is to see where we have managed to leapfrog uh, uh, in some uh, areas. But I would also want uh, potential philanthropists to be thinking about some of the more challenging areas of our society. So technology is, is sexy, health benefits is sexy, education to a certain extent is sexy, agriculture, not so much so, despite the huge uh, challenge this is for so many uh, societies, so many emerging uh, economies, particularly in uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but not only in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. This is uh, also an issue, uh, I think, in terms of uh, the Middle East and the kind of innovations that we have seen uh, in a region where it is not necessary, where it is not possible to grow, for example, everything that is necessary uh, uh, to keep people food secure. So issues around food security, um, uh, agriculture, energy uh, going forward. I mean, climate change has become so much more present in our lives. Environmental sustainability has become so much more of an issue. So again, in a region uh, where you are having to look at uh, energy transformation and how to transform your economies from one that is uh, oil dependent uh, as the world shifts, I think there are some huge uh, opportunities here for transformation and change. So staying with the youth uh, and technology, I'd like to ask what you feel the effects of behavioral shifts uh, and the pervasiveness of technology, as you talked about, on the field of philanthropy. So how do you think that the youth of today will change the way that philanthropy is practiced in the future, uh, not just through the increasing use of technology, but also in, in, in other ways? So I think that there is an issue here about culture. Uh, and I think that if, if we look at uh, what I think about as the sort of two big activist movements that we have seen uh, this year, the first around uh, environmental sustainability and climate change, the second around uh, Black, Black Lives Matter, which really roots into uh, issues around equality and justice and uh, inclusion, I think our young people are so interested in what kind of societies are they going to uh, inherit. Uh, and you asked about risks before, and I didn't really address your point um, about uh, risk. But I think part of the risk is uh, if we don't take our young people with us, if we don't marry uh, or integrate or align uh, these concerns about these wider uh, issues with concerns about uh, rights, equality, and uh, in inclusion, then we will end up with uh, societies which become even more fragmented rather than more connected. And I think our, our young people are leading the way 
in relation to these uh, issues. They are telling us that they want to live in a world which is different, which is connected not just through technology, and that's uh, great, but also which is more connected through a values uh, prism uh, than perhaps we have managed to deliver on in the past. So on that note, um, cooperation and, and collaboration or, or the lack of it can make a difference between stability and chaos, uh, as has been so clearly demonstrated in the run-up to and I think during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, I recall through my exposure to the humanitarian sector as a member of the UN uh, Secretary General's high-level panel on humanitarian financing, which uh, you nominated me to, uh, the challenges to inspire collaboration between uh, the business sector and a sector which serves the most vulnerable children, women and men of the world were incredible. You have plenty of experience across all sectors. Um, what makes for a truly successful collaboration between business, government, academia uh, and philanthropic institutions and actors? Well, partly what we have seen uh, in the last few months is that um, crisis forces collaboration. Uh, the kind of speed that we have seen uh, in terms of the development of uh, the vaccine, going back to the COVID uh, example, uh, the work, the very close work between uh, academia uh, and uh, uh, private uh, sector pharmaceutical organizations, the collaboration we have seen between uh, the different programs going on at, at Oxford Imperial and elsewhere, all of this points to the importance of partnership collaboration. Uh, uh, so I think crisis forces that. I think the global nature of the challenges that we face, so these aren't challenges that can be contained uh, within uh, borders. The cost of a lack of action are significant. No one government can do this uh, on its own. So it's also pointed to the importance of our multilateral system, even though I think part of the downside of that is to show us very clearly that that is a system that requires uh, speedy reform. And how we do that, uh, I think, is still uh, an area that uh, we haven't quite uh, managed to grasp, given the uh, individual interests of uh, the countries that make up uh, that multilateral system, but also going back to the importance of partnership and collaboration. This, this can't just be intergovernmental. It has to work across uh, different uh, sectors of society uh, as well. So I think that there are great opportunities there. There are a lot of potential downsides that we have to work on. Financing. Um, uh, yes. Uh, uh, which... Um, again, we are talking about huge amounts of resourcing. Uh, and again, that is going to require uh, collaboration because countries uh, definitely cannot do, do it on their own. Uh, our multilateral organizations are funded, you know, mainly through uh, governments, but also uh, through philanthropy. So uh, there's a forcing of collaboration here, which I think is a good thing. So, so moving to a sector that you're currently uh, engaged uh, in, I'd like to ask you about the, the changing role of education uh, and the disruptive trends that we've seen over the years that are 
uh, perhaps challenging educational institutions around the world to adapt to um, a brave new world. Uh, I've been appointed to a newly uh, formed UNESCO International Commission on the Futures of Education uh, that, that seeks to reimagine how knowledge and learning can shape the future of humanity and our planet, uh, not for the faint-hearted. Uh, the, the, the discussions we're having to, to predict the changes over the next half century are complex, to say the least. But how do you see education pivoting, if at all, to accommodate uh, new societal expectations? And what role does philanthropy play to ensuring that this transition doesn't leave anybody behind, especially in many regions of the world that have traditionally been underserved by the education sector? Education has to shift uh, and indeed um, has shifted. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in Oxford. I was uh, in London at uh, SOAS. Within a few days in March, uh, we pivoted. Uh, we moved so much of what we were doing uh, online. Uh, many of our academics, you know, just stepped up to the plate at that point. Uh, many who would have told you uh, technology is, uh, is not my thing. And we continue to see uh, that uh, growth and uh, development and expansion of uh, ideas in terms of uh, what traditional educational uh, institutions have done. I think what uh, the opportunity that this gives us is really to think about uh, what we have talked about a lot in uh, developed uh, countries and where I think uh, in developing countries, uh, in emerging economies, they have the opportunity to leapfrog, is that we talk very often about uh, an educational system uh, which is a continuum uh, from primary education uh, through uh, higher education, where is there, there is a focus not just on uh, the academic elements of this, but also on the vocational, uh, on, on training and uh, on development. And, what the last few months has shown us is that we need to be able to help people to reskill very, very quickly. So we need the research, the academic piece. Uh, we need the, the thinking uh, forward uh, to be thinking outside of uh, the box. Our scientists are so uh, brilliant at this. We need the collaborations across uh, institutions to help us to deliver this. But I think it opens up that opportunity to think about uh, a wider education arc and how within that education uh, arc, we can not only have uh, that elite uh, excellence in terms of, of, of higher education, uh, but also how we can really bolster and put in place the resources uh, that we need to enable us to think about uh, knowledge, uh, policy development, uh, training, skills development in a very, very different kind of way. And how we can really deliver what we've talked about for a long time, uh, which is, you know, across the world, the resourcing of uh, education to enable every child, and of course, this is a, a, a massive global ambition, but to enable everyone to fill their potential. And we know that where uh, governments in emerging economies are able to really resource our education, it makes such a, uh, such a difference to them nationally, 
but also in terms of how they are able to position themselves in a global uh, context. Uh, you're sitting there uh, in uh, Dubai. What we have seen the UAE government do, uh, for example, in terms of thinking about how a country in the Gulf, massively wealthy, but with a relatively small population, can exercise soft power as a result of an investment in education and training uh, is something which uh, I think uh, many countries in uh, the Middle East can uh, teach the rest of us. Finally, uh, we all know how important trust is in, in, in business and government and philanthropy and, and obviously in our personal relationships. However, we seem to be living through a, a time where a lot of people have very little trust in institutions uh, and sometimes can't even agree on basic uh, facts. Mm -hmm. uh, how, can, how concerned are you about the uh, degradation of trust that we're seeing in institutions today uh, and between institutions, um, especially when the scale and nature of challenges that we need to address around the world are only getting more complex? And what can we do to uh, reverse this unfortunate trend? Yeah, uh, I'm extremely worried about this breakdown uh, in trust. Uh, uh, you know, as I said before, I think that you know, many of our uh, institutions, particularly at the global level, I think uh, also at the national level, need to be, uh, need to be reformed. Um, so it's not that I think that the institutions need to stay uh, put. Um, uh, I am uh, all in favor of uh, reform, reflecting the changes in our, our wider society, but you know, located within a set of principles and values that we think are important. Uh, my worry is that as, as people have less and less uh, confidence, particularly in the political uh, institutions, but more uh, broadly within that, there is a sense that we don't need these institutions at all. Um, and history shows us that we need some kind of institutional underpinning to make the kind of broader, significant societal changes that we want to see in uh, our societies. So we need to begin to restore trust. And what is happening in the United States right now, uh, in terms of the recent uh, elections, uh, doesn't give me uh, much hope uh, in the short term. Uh, it, but it, it gives me hope more, uh, I have more hope in the longer term, uh, because I think that this has got to be a slow process of rebuilding uh, that trust. You know, the rule of law remains uh, extremely uh, important, I think, uh, in uh, countries. People need to see the difference that institutions make in their lives. Uh, they need to have a mechanism that enables them to have an influence on those uh, institutions. So there's going to be a lot of questioning and querying of uh, 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 democracy, democratic institutions, what they mean, you know, how they can still deliver uh, for people on the ground uh, and how people can be invested in the kinds of changes that uh, we want to see. So I don't have a, uh, there's no easy answer to this, I think. Uh, but I think it requires a lot of um, hard work uh, and 
it will take time to rebuild. It's easy, it's relatively easy to tear down. Uh, mm -hmm. It's much, much harder to build back. Absolutely, and, and if I might add, the sooner we move away from a transactional approach to trying to create trust Absolutely. and to really thinking about that uh, through a much longer term lens and really, you know, investing in the long term nature of building trust through institutions, uh, then the better, quite frankly. Um, I agree. And also embracing different ways of working. I mean, one of the things that I remember from my time at the United Nations and working on these humanitarian financing issues was you know, the lack of, of trust and the lack of understanding between uh, different parts of the world as to how this could be done. Absolutely. Uh, and a kind of commitment uh, hanging on to a model which was essentially a model uh, through the lens of the West as this is the best and only way that this can be done without recognizing the particular benefits uh, and the advantages of the ways in which this was done in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, the Gulf being uh, one example. And uh, one of the things I'm proud of is that we were able to begin that bridge uh, building uh, between countries in different regions across uh, the world. And I think that, you know, the more that we can embrace those differences, learn the lessons from each other, and think about how we can take this forward, not just in relation to financing, uh, but other uh, areas that uh, concern us, uh, the better it will be. Hear, hear. Dearest Valerie, uh, as always, uh, a pleasure. Your um, inspirational energy truly is evergreen. Uh, and whilst it's uh, great to see you on screen, I, I, I certainly look forward to our next in-person get-together in the hopefully not too distant future. Thank you again and again. Thank you. It's great as always to talk to you and good luck with this project. Thank you very much.